Hello and welcome to the Walt Weekly Podcast, Friday Night Live. My name is Walter Latham Sr. I'm your host and I'm joined by your co-host, Michelle Sweeney McCombs, who will also be performing moderation duties in the chat box. So if you have any questions, write them in the chat box and we'll make sure they get answered for you. At least we will try. All right. So I want to start by saying we have been bombarded with bad news about our youth or all these shootings. And sometimes it seems like, you know, it's all going to hell. We're lost. The information that we're getting sounds like the younger generation is bound for annihilation. You know, we're not going to have descendants or a legacy here. But with all this madness, which is fractional, by the way, in our community, I have discovered that our children will be fine. And our guest tonight typifies what I'm talking about. They will take up the mantle that was bestowed upon them, and they will carry it forward to successive generations. They will be successful, thereby continuing the legacy of their ancestors. Because I'm so proud. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Michelle for introduction, and I may further that. But Michelle? Yes, thank you, Walter. And good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Walt Weekly Friday Night Live. Thank you to our live audience, as always, for joining us. Please follow the Walt Weekly and share this podcast by clicking the share button below. The Walt Weekly Friday Night Live is brought to you by Michelle Sweeney Hair and Skincare. Our intro and outro music is provided by Uncle Nephew. Today's special guest, we have Miss Hawa Allen. She's a writer of cultural criticism, fiction, and poetry. She was uh, born and raised in Brooklyn. She's a lecturer at the New School and essay editor at The Offing. I will post all of her information, website, where you can purchase her book, everything in the chat room. If you all have any questions or comments, please write them in the chat room below and I will definitely recognize everyone in the chat room. We appreciate you coming on the show, Ms. Allen. I'll give us your humble beginnings. Sure. So um, in terms of where I was raised, so I was actually, I currently live in Brooklyn, but I was born in the city, mm-hmm. New York City, mm-hmm. Manhattan, for the most part in Suffolk County and Long Island. Okay. Um, so I am a New Yorker, but uh, via uh, the uh, bridge part of Bridge and Tunnel. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so what brought you to Brooklyn? Well, just, you know, yeah, moving the, the girl moving to the big city kind of thing. It was really, I yeah. didn't really expect to live anywhere else other than the city at some point. I, I, nice. In my mind, I, I assumed I'd just grow up and move, move there. So it was awesome. more of an assumption that I always had than a goal of any kind. Right. Um, and you know, growing up, my parents worked in the city regularly. They're both uh, professors uh, in in the city. My mother was at Baruch, and my father was at mm-hmm. Long Island University. So even though I was at you know growing up in Long Island and whatnot, we were going back and forth to the city all the time. Whether because sometimes I would accompany them to work for you know whatever reason, or uh, they had a lot of family friends who lived in the city who were part of the Sierra Leonean diaspora. So 
that's another okay. uh, plot okay. point. So my both my parents were uh, born in Sierra Leone. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. So how I do want to again congratulate you on the publication of Insurrection, your book Insurrection, by one of the major publishers, W. W. Norton. And uh, what was your reaction when you found out that they were going to publish your book? Well, so it was a uh, it was a, a long trajectory in a way because um, I started doing this research while I was doing a fellowship, just doing uh, a lot of legal research on the Insurrection Act and writing about it in a more um, sort of scholarly type of way. So, so the shorthand, the Insurrection Act allows a president to deploy federal troops and or deputize the National Guard, which is usually under the uh, command of the state governor um, right. in order to uh, suppress domestic unrest. So, you know, that's shorthand for what the Insurrection Act is. So I was doing a lot of research on this. And um, I also had a background aside from uh, being a lawyer in writing for publication. So... Okay. It, seemed, it always seemed odd to me to be in an academic setting and only be writing for a, a, a small audience. So I took that research and I branched out and I started writing pieces based on it for uh, more mainstream audiences. So for example, the Los Angeles Review of Books, it's an online uh, publication that um, you know has a lot of literary type, types of works, but also some academic works as well. So I published a piece there that happened to catch the attention of my editor and then she, my now editor. So she contacted me and asked me if I was interested in, in expanding it into a book length project. So that's how this whole um, uh, book eff effectively started. Like I wrote the article, then the editor got in contact with me. And then once I published a legal article that was the basis for a lot of my um, arguments. Uh, I followed up with a book proposal, and then we went from there. All right, great, great. Now, before we start uh, the questions, you got a lot of endorsements. You got some heavy endorsements. Uh, <laughs> you wrote this book. All right, first, now I'm going to be quoting, so y'all guys bear along with me. I saw one endorsement by Adrian Piper. He was the author of Escape to Berlin. Now, I'm, I'm reading this his quote, because I, you know, I just, I just want to make sure I quote him. And he said, Howard Allen speaks with the cool, clear, analytical rigor of the highly trained legal scholar. The detached bemusement of the social anthropologist who declines to go native. The eloquence of the poet and the sublimated autobiographical anger of the unwilling recipient of this country's doggedly persistent attempt to deny the rights of full and equal citizenship to Americans of acknowledged African descent. Her prose is mesmerizing. Her voice is fresh, original, and completely unique. Insurrection is a profound historical meditation on the American pathology. The brilliant debut of a major thinker on the American intellectual scene. Now that's just awesome. 
that's just awesome. You know, I'm proud of you. You know, I'm like your uncle because we go way back. <laughs> your family yes. and mine. You know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. There have been very few you know, black people on Long Island when we moved out here. So, and uh, and we, I was, you know, my wife was very close to your mother and father. Okay. So, I mean, to see that and to see Publishers Weekly chime in and say eloquently, and they're talking about insurrection, the book Insurrection, eloquently mixing history, autobiography, and philosophy. This powerful account sheds new light on the Black experience in America. And just that's the Publishers Weekly. So, I mean, with all those kudos that you're getting, I mean, I just got to say congratulations again. And, you know, the last time I think we interacted, you were on your way to University of Chicago. So that's almost like 15 years ago, 20 years ago or more. So and uh, I just like to, you know, just thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for a job. Well done. Thank you for representing. You know, thank you for representing. Yes, now, congratulations on your publication as well. Yeah. Yes. Thank you very I'm much. So Thank proud. you. I'm so yes. proud. Yeah, your family. I know your family is proud. And, and uh, I know your father who passed a few years back, my friend, Dr. James Allen, is up there in, in heaven saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that trouble she put us through, you know. <laughs> you always a quiet person. <laughs> <laughs> You're always a quiet person. So, yeah, you were the quiet one, but I mean, really, it worked. You know, their efforts worked. Right. Thank you very uh, much. Okay. All right. First, uh, let's talk about, you know, how did you come about writing Insurrection? So, basically, I was curious about what caused the delay in the federal response to Hurricane Katrina. So, I think we all remember Kanye West and Mike Myers on that uh, televised fundraiser oh, yeah. where Kanye West, you know, he said, George Bush doesn't care about black people. Yes. Right. So, but that he was saying that in the context of the apparent uh, delay, the long delay in federal help um, being deployed to New Orleans in particular and Louisiana in general. So I was curious about the nature of the delay, because I saw at some point that George W. Bush had mentioned that it was really more of a bureaucratic and legal reason why he did not respond as quickly as he he may have, you know, it was he would have liked to. So he explained that when the governor of Louisiana, then her, her, her name was Kathleen Blanco, the then governor of Louisiana, when she made a request for federal assistance, she made a request through the Stafford Act. So the Stafford Act is legislation that facilitates the provision of federal help, you know, in the in the in the form of funding, but also in the form of say federal troops or even coordinated National Guard troops, you know, to provide assistance in the event of a natural disaster or a man man-made disaster. So okay. When these troops would have been, um, this, these military, this military assistance would have been facilitated through the Stafford Act, they cannot engage in certain law enforcement activities like uh, search and seizure, 
um, making arrests, you know, the sorts of law enforcement activities that are uh, delegated to state and local law enforcement. So, however, those same military um, deployments would be able to engage in that activity if they were deployed pursuant to the Insurrection Act. Because whereas the Stafford Act is the mission is largely to engage in search and rescue activities and relief uh, activities in the event of a disaster. The Insurrection Act, as implied by its name, is intended to essentially use the, the military domestically to squash, you know, domestic violence, um, you know, civil disturbance. But th their their mission is quite different. It's a law enforcement mission and a law and order sort of restoration mission as opposed to a search and rescue mission. So now um, when Blanco made her request, Bush said, I would rather uh, send any military troops under the Insurrection Act. And he said this was because at the time when communications were down, of course there was a natural disaster, there was a major hurricane. There was very little way for um, the, uh, you know, officials on the ground to receive and transmit reliable information. So amid this communication breakdown and shutdown, uh, crazy rumors proliferated, essentially uh, imputing violence to the mostly black population in New Orleans. There were rumors of rooftop uh, snipers shooting at people. There were these rumors of uh, murder and rape in the Superdome, which was the, the makeshift shelter where a lot of the storm victims ended up gathering to escape the floodwaters. Um, so there was all, all of these rumors of violence, right? So George W. Bush, in response to these rumors of violence that he were being transmitted to him from the, uh, on, the, from on the ground in New, New Orleans, thought that the best response would be through the Insurrection Act in terms of the military response as opposed to the Stafford Act. Now, okay. Kathleen Blanco, so the governor, Kathleen Blanco, did not agree. However, I always point out it's not necessarily because she herself felt that she wanted the, the military response to be more compassionate because she, her, she was also uh, being subjected to these rumors and, you know, spreading the, the, the officials on the ground were spreading these rumors amongst themselves. And uh, she, around that time of the uh, disaster during this interim period, she had a press release, uh, a press, she issued a press statement saying that she was barring National Guard troops from neighboring states. And they were coming with M16s that were locked and loaded and ready to shoot to kill if necessary. So in the midst of this disaster, the very mayor, uh, sorry, the governor of Louisiana was essentially issuing threats to the storm victims on the ground. Mm -hmm. Now, Mayor Nagan himself, Ray, uh, Ray Nagan, he was also involved with this spreading of rumors. And he... he yeah, I was thinking about him, it. yeah. Exactly, because you might have heard him or seen him uh, on television or read, read some reports and quotes from him, uh, essentially talking about the violence on the ground. So there was... This is... This was the, the background to George W. Bush's wish to invoke the Insurrection Act. However, Governor Blanco and George W. Bush ended up arguing over the Insurrection Act because that would have given the president 
the uh, essentially it would it would give the president the authority to act as the commander in chief of those uh, troops that were dispatched there, and uh, as opposed to the governor, who's typically would typically be the commander in chief, you know of uh, the National Guard, and then you know the law right, enforcement right. response on the ground, etc. So they had a federalist battle, essentially. You know who whose authority should um, supersede? Should it be in this instance the state or the federal? And that's what they were arguing about for several days while people were stranded and um, you know drowning uh, in in New Orleans. So I was fascinated by this, thinking this is the reason why. Um, it took so long for the federal government to respond. So to end the suspense, in the end, George W. Bush decided not to invoke the Insurrection Act. And as he stated in his memoir, Decision Points, he said, so, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, if I, as a white male Republican president, invoke the Insurrection Act over the objection of a white female Democrat governor, in the deep south with respect to a mostly black population that would raise holy hell like this is what he said in his memoir so what one more wrinkle and i know this uh, this is a lot and i'll stop no 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 okay so one more wrinkle is that so the insurrection act can be invoked either unilaterally alone basically the president could decide to you know to uh do so if they're you know to, to enforce federal law or if there are any constitutional rights of, of citizens on the ground that the state is unwilling or unable to protect. And, you know, the governors themselves can make a request specifically for the president to invoke the Insurrection Act in order to, you know, deploy federal troops and or deputize National Guard. So it, it there is flexibility in the sense that the George W. Bush could have and his administration, he's not just one man, right? He has an administration behind him. Someone could have crafted a legal rationale for him to invoke the Insurrection Act unilaterally. But, you know, as he said, you know, that this would raise holy hell, he was uh, reticent to do so and decided not to and finally dispatched the, the, you know, a, 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 a military assistance through the Stafford Act only. I see. Now, go, going back to the origination of the uh, 1807 Insurrection Act of 1807. Now, wasn't that to put down any type of rebellion by slaves? Wasn't it specifically target, targeted towards that type of thing, the uprising? Well, so it was passed in 1807, and there is no legislative history. So that means that there's no uh, record of any debates made by Congress at the time that the, you know, the act, you know, was enacted. Uh, there, so it, it, there, the, the record there is silent as to what the actual, um, uh, motivations were officially. Um, it has two antecedents. Uh, it's a militia acts of 1792, the the record around you know the the enactment of those that legislation is also sparse, but you know they were they were used. Uh, there's record of them having been used, not necessarily with, with respect to slave rebellions, but you know the whiskey right. rebellion. It was like this um, sort of rebellion of of um, this is sort of like a, like a tax related rebellion. But in any event, a lot of people 
um, link the Insurrection Act, a lot of people, there are legal scholars who link the Insurrection Act to the Shays Rebellion. And they say that, you know, this was, uh, you know, the rebellion that, you know, there, there have been, from what I had read, because I was trying to read to find out what the, what the motivations were. And I've, I've seen, you know, Shays Rebellion. So, but um, around the time when I was researching this, I was a, a I had a, you know, acquaintance I was chatting with about this research on campus. They kept saying, does this have to do with slave insurrection? He kept saying that. And I was thinking, I'm not reading this, but that seems, you know, logical. It seems uh, a, a, like to, to be like a rational question to ask. But um, uh, I, 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 I'll talk about the pattern that I later did discover when I looked at the, the, um, invocations of the act and what I was surprised to find. But, you know, in response to the specific question, what I will say is that uh, I don't think it is a coincidence that the first militia acts were enacted in 1792, which is one year after the Haitian Revolution started. The Insurrection Act of, you know, of 1807 was passed three years after the Haitian Revolution ended. But it was just, it was interesting in the book, at least, to consider uh, the silence around the enactment of the Insurrection Act uh, in relation to other curious silences, which, you know, make you wonder, well, does a silence e uh, equal then absence of a consideration? Or is it in fact, um, you know, does it in fact indicate that there was, you know, an elephant in the room, so to speak, right? Because, um the as I was researching around around that time, just you know, seeing what you know, it, certain uh, incidents that were, were occurring around around the time to see the legislative context of you know the Insurrection Act and its antecedents. Um, I learned that during the time of the Haitian Revolution, there was a major um, you know trepidation among uh, slaveholders. In, in the South because they were concerned that the uprising, um, you know, on, you know, then, then San Domingo would spread to their shores and, in, um, in, inspire and incite rebellion, uh, amongst the enslaved. So there, you know, I read, a, I, 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 I digressed a lot as I, as I write, throughout the book. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, just, so it's not just about the insurrection act. There's a lot of other sort of, um, sort of, uh, non uh, details about other incidents that could be uh, relevant to the discussion. But I was very interested in seeing this theme, uh, amongst, you know, enslavers and in, in slave holding states of this reticence to even discuss certain item, uh, certain, events like the Haitian revolution, or even to talk about, uh, the fear of, uh, of slave insurrections, which was palpable, but also somewhat silenced. So there was a cult, there was these cultures of silence that would arise around, uh, these fears of insurrection. And uh, I consider that in connection with the curious silence around the enactment of the insurrection act. And that was really more, quite frankly, of a literary device. It's certainly not, you know, a as any kind of historical fact because i don't i don't know what why it was passed definitively but what i do is i raise the specter 
of you know the the fact of, of you know enslavement incurring at that time and the fear of slave insurrection as a sort of its own looming legislative context, right? Aside right. from say the Shays Rebellion, which was a rebellion of white citizens, another tax rebellion, right? Um, so it, it was just interesting to to see how it this you know great looming I guess threat to the white slaveholding society was not really contemplated as something that could very well have been kept in mind with respect to the Insurrection Act. And I was interested to find that a military historian cited the Insurrection Act as the authority that uh, was used to deploy federal troops to help suppress the Nat Turner Rebellion. So, you know, that at least I, I, I saw that piece of evidence. All right, so it was um, utilized during the Nat Turner Rebellion? Yes, according according to at least one military, military historian, yep. Okay, okay. Um, Michelle, are there any uh, audience questions so far? There are no audience questions so far. Okay, everybody's in listen and learn mode. It's definitely okay. important stuff, just comments. Christopher just uh, said a comment, very important. Okay. Uh, Jean, are, are you there? Yes, I'd like to bring in Jean Edwards, male district leader out of the Bronx. He's our panel member, weekly panel member. Yes. Our dear sister touched on it, but um, she said it so fast. I didn't have a chance to take it all in. And, and it's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask, and it seems as though she answered. And the question uh, I have, and can you please repeat it? Because I, I heard it, but like I said, it happened so fast, I couldn't digest it. And the question I have, um, the uh, slave rebellions in Louisiana that took place in 1807, were they inspired? by the successful slave rebellions of 1804 with Toussaint uh, Louverture and Dessalines and the rest of that crew? So I don't know specifically, but I definitely consider the fact that this was happening in the background, um, you know, from, from 1791 to 1804. And I look at the... Uh, you know, the record of, you know, the effect that it, it seemed to have had on some of the members of society in the slaveholding South, right? And um, what was interesting to find is not, is that there are so many um, silences around, it, like say, for example, if the historians were looking at local newspapers at the time, um, there would be, you know, you would think that this is something that the newspapers would talk about. Wow, there's this major rebellion happening uh, in the uh, in you know just just south of the United States. I mean, it's clearly big news. But there would be these what you know certain historians would would look and see that there was a curious absence of discussion, right? So you're seeing it's like it's like this interesting theme that emerged where you know these major occurrences were being elided in order to uh, avoid uh, giving them too much attention for the fear that it could inspire slave rebellion. So, I mean, so I guess the short answer is I, I don't know, but I do use uh, that, that chapter in the book to, 
just sort of speculate and and bring the Haitian the, the Haitian Revolution back into discussion with the fact that this act was passed, you know, not too long af- after it was successful, and consider the silence around its enactment alongside the silences, uh, you know, around the discussion of the Haitian Revolution in the slaveholding South. In cer- it's definitely certain parts of the slaveholding South. Okay. Now, I do uh, want to talk about uh, this paradoxical relationship of being a Black American citizen in this country. Could you explain explain what, what you mean by that? Could you go in a little bit more depth? Okay. So after I, I, I saw this reference to the Insurrection Act with respect to Hurricane Katrina and George W. Bush's, you know, discussion about how uh, to you know invoke the act under those circumstances would raise holy hell. I decided to just take a look and see if I could find the other instances when the act was invoked. And to do so, it requires looking at the proclamations, the presidential proclamations. At least, well, there could be other ways of doing it. That was the that was the strategy that I used because in order to invoke the act, you first, technically under the act, you have to make a proclamation, essentially you know, claiming that there's some sort of domestic violence or unlawful combination or insurrection and uh, ordering the people involved to disperse, right? So this is a very official action. It's, I don't think people are paying attention to presidential proclamations, especially when they're engaged in rebellions. <laughs> but, right, uh, right. you know, but first you have to, the president would have to make that proclamation and it would be followed by an executive order that would, you know, t- officially authorize the the deployment of troops afterwards. So I went through and looked through the proclamations and then I found this very interesting pattern. So the first I found uh, that the last time it had been used and that this is still true was in uh, with respect to the LA riots to respond after, you know, the uprising that broke out following the acquittal of certain cops involved with the Rodney King beating. And before that, it was used in uh, D.C., Baltimore, and Chicago in response of after the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and riots uh, broke out in those cities. It was also used to respond to the Detroit riots of 1943 and 1967, as well as, um, you know, during Reconstruction, Ulysses S. Grant invoked the act in order to help suppress KKK violence um, in the South. He, it was also invoked in, in response to um, the f- uh, pro and anti, uh, in response to violent clashes between the pro and anti-slavery forces in the then territory of Kansas. We call it Bleeding Kansas. Um, there was a, a clash between those forces uh, in order to determine whether Kansas would be a free slave state or a slave state. Again, I, I mentioned that Nat Turner's rebellion. That was the earliest, earliest uh, invocation that I could find. And I, but I have to, you know, sort of uh, qualify that by saying the you know records of presidential proclamations are become a little bit 
unreliable before 1900. Now everything is, you know, like the the T's are, are, are crossed, the I's are dotted, etc. So, you know, from the 20th century and beyond, the, the record is very clear. Before that, it starts to get a little bit um, more difficult to use the, the tactic that I was using, which is basically using that paperwork to then go back and look at what event they were specifically referring to. Um, so, for example, I, I in uh, sending militia to Fort Sumter, you know, which is, this is President Lincoln here, uh, which heralded the start of the Civil War, he did make a proclamation regarding the insurrection, you know, of the forces he was sending militias down, uh, down to subdue. So, arguably, that was also an Insurrection Act invocation, although... I do mention I do mention the proclamation in the book, but I, I haven't been, you know, entirely confident that it was the Insurrection Act, just based on how the 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 proclamation was phrased. Because that's how that's pretty much how I was doing this research, was using those documents to then go back and look at the history. But oftentimes, when you read history, then to sort of cross reference with these you know proclamations and executive orders. You don't always, um, you know, the, the historians are not necessarily focused on which laws uh, authorized various deployments. And I also saw, you know, as I was reading some of the history in order to write this book, I would see that there were numerous deployments of federal troops in various circumstances. And then I would look back into the, uh, into the, the records to see if there were any proclamations that corresponded. You know, I was sort of going back and forth. And it, right, it was not right. until you get to the 20th century that the paper that paperwork starts to become more organized, shall I say? And one more point I will make is uh, during the George Floyd uprising. I think you know if people. I know last year seems not even last year now, two years ago, in uh, 2020 that seems like 10 years ago. But uh, jo- um, Donald Donald Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act in order to uh, subdue. Uh, you know the, the George Floyd uprising across various states. So that was that made big news yet again. More recently, he ended up not doing so. He was um, discouraged by a certain high high. Yeah, somebody had to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. again, that that's a it's it's sort of fits into this pattern. Now that's one side of the pattern, which has to do with these so-called race riots and you know, sort of these uprisings against slave powers, et cetera, that we see earlier, uh, you know, on in the, the history of the invocations. But there's another side to the Insurrection Act, which arose largely during the civil rights movement. And one uh, which we, you know, all know about is the desegregation of public schools in the South. So uh, it was used in order to enforce the, that desegregation in Mississippi, Alabama, and Arkansas. So, you know, when you think of the Little Rock Nine or James Meredith attempting to register at the University of Mississippi and, you know, the, 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 the National Guard troops that facilitated, you know, the, the entry of the students and the, the registrations, those were Insurrection Act invocations in those instances. Yeah, that Alabama desegregation, yeah, when George Wallace tried to block the door for uh, the black student. Exactly. Yes. Was utilized there, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question. 
Yes, yeah. Alan. You know, you're very passionate about this topic. What inspired you to write Insurrection and how long did this book take for you to get published and actually worked on it? For how, how many years? I'm sure it's been quite some time. There's a lot of research. Well, so the the first dimension of the research, I started probably about 10 years ago. Yeah, it's 10 years ago. Um, and that was more so for a legal article. It was I wasn't thinking about it beyond tr trying to put together a legal article to just um, explore this issue. Uh, so that's when I started the research. And I didn't I wasn't really thinking about putting it into book form until after, uh, like I said, that Los Angeles Review of Books piece was published. Um, and I wrote about the Insurrection Act in uh, in in conjunction with at that time, the uh, Black Lives Matter protests following, you know, the string of Black Lives Matter protests that followed the Mike Brown killing. So I was writing specifically about Ferguson. And what interested me there is that uh, Obama was president then, but there was a lieutenant general, uh, you know, military official at the time who had suggested to Obama to invoke the Insurrection Act in order to respond to Ferguson. And he declined or his administration declined. So that yet again, I was seeing this pattern evolve where the Insurrection Act pops up and people it seems to pop up in people's heads when it, comes, <laughs> right. when it comes to black uprisings. Right. Um, so, you know, that caught the attention of my editor. And then, you know, I decided I should probably finish up my legal article because I needed yeah. some kind of, you know, basis on which to, you know, opine on all of this information that I had collected. But mm -hmm. I, I frankly, I did not start writing the book in earnest until um you know sometime in 2019 uh, i was i i was a little bit blocked by the trump administration it was just a barrage of you know news and information and just absurdity and I, I was just having a hard time you know quieting my mind and really focusing on the task at hand and as and also nice. uh because like when my editor you know she was interested in having me write this not only as a straight legal history but also with that personal narrative that has sort of hybrid style like to make it a little bit you know more literary right, right. so and i will that's what i warn everybody if you actually read the book it's not just legal history there are going to be other you know interludes going on and you know it's it's right. intended to be to have to have you sort of enjoy the 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 reading of it as you go along. It's not just uh, these dire incidents, but anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, I was having trouble. I wasn't really inspired to interweave personal narrative at the beginning of the Trump administration. I think a, a lot of that time was focused more so on immigration issues. Um. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, like, how am I going to do this? And then finally, I just decided to start. And then not that, not so long thereafter, we have the George Floyd riots. And then all of the issues that I was exploring and thinking about suddenly were, you know, in, in, the, in the mainstream media. They're part of the current event sort of cycle, uh, start, starting with, the, you know, his, his 
his threat to invoke the Insurrection Act. Uh, I think it was the beginning, end of May, maybe, or beginning of June of 2020, all the way through the quote-unquote insurrection of January 6th. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to mention to you. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, everything I was writing about was, you know, um, viable and and you know on the in the in the mainstream news. So then it, the the writing kind of came along fairly quickly after that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay. No, so well, basically, no, basically, I'm sorry. You, I want to continue. Yeah, go ahead. You basically wrote this book for educational purposes, or do you have? Do you hope? it has some kind of impact or some kind of attention on what's going on in 1804 compared to now. Right. What impact do you expect? Yeah. Well, I I don't know if I had a, a, um, an idea of the impact per se, because it's not, even though I'm a lawyer, it's not the sort of book that says, if you tweak the act in this way, shape or form, magically the world's going to change. Like if anything, what I'm showing is how, this act, and this goes back to the paradoxical state of black citizenship. So I'm showing how it's invocation and in these very exceptional invocations, mind you, because it's something, it's a very extraordinary power. It's something that, you know, historically anyway, presidents have been, um, you know, hesitant to employ, even though they have the technically can unilaterally do so under the, the right, you know, uh, circumstances or with the, the appropriate legal basis. So even in this extra- extraordinary situation, you see, still see this, uh, you know, this pattern where it's used either to suppress so-called race riots and, or to enforce civil rights. So that, that brings me back to this paradox of black citizenship where, you know, in some instances you see black, black citizens or black people in America, depending on what time of history we're talking about, being treated as in it, you know, the internal enemy or, you know, a threat to law and order, uh, and you know, a dis, you know, disturbers of mm-hmm. the peace, or in other in other instances, you know, being wards of the state who require federal protection in order to enforce their constitutional rights. So the other, aside from desegregation of public schools, it was also used in order to enforce the rights of civil rights protesters to march from Selma to Montgomery. So mm-hmm. that's another key a key example. So it was just remarkable to me to just sort of see how, you know, in just trying to look more into the Insurrection Act, all of a sudden I'm seeing all these major plot points in not only United States history, but specifically African-American history. And I was interested in the story about what this tells us about uh, the nature of black citizenship, which, you know, obviously to be a black citizen at the founding of this country was an oxymoron. Like it just was not, it, it, it was impossible. It was untenable. And now right. here we are with the formal freedom, but at least, you know, looking at this solely through the Insurrection Act, you see this, you still see this instability in terms of this, you know, progress and this, you know, uh, full integration of, of black people in America into the citizenry of the United States. Um, and, you know, so I, I say, you know, quite controversially, that the history of progress when it comes to, you know, what, what we would call like race relations or, you know, all of that really starts to look like a, like an ongoing and bloody battle or something akin to a civil war. Um, right. 
when you think about, you know, this so-called progress, I'm not going to say so-called progress, but progress in quotes, at least, uh, through these Insurrection Act invocations. So that, that was, that's what was interesting to me about it, I guess, to answer your question is yes. just, you know, thinking about it in terms of this overall pattern and thinking about it in terms of what that means to be a Black person in the United States today. Um, right. You know, and, and a, sort of a different lens to consider history because we're now, I think we're all engaged in that now. We have this culture war about critical, what, what is being called critical race theory, critical race theory. Mm-hmm. you know, and uh, reinterpretations of history. Should it be the 1619 Project's view or should it be the 1776 Report's view, right? So we're engaged in these battles in a sort of a larger culture war sort of way. Um, so I was just interested, and this I started writing it before these culture wars sort of came to the fore. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I think it's very important to reconsider um, this, the narratives that are uh, largely accepted um, with respect to this history. You know, because we often, we just had Martin Luther King Day, we often receive these sanitized uh, portrayals of this history. And, you know, the, the background violence, the background tensions, they seem to be uh, sort of erased or stripped out to present this sort of linear, rosy pattern of progress. So I'm writing against that with this book. Okay. I don't want you to give, I don't want you to give it up now because we want people to buy your book. <laughs> That's so, true. <laughs> yes, we want people to yes. buy Insurrection. All right. Uh, Okay, now you are an attorney and you work with a law firm. What what did you specialize in as an attorney? And, and what law? Whether it be uh, tort or you know, I'm trying to go back to my legal days in these various terms. <laughs> but where would you where would you place yourself? Well, I originally was a corporate attorney at more of a traditional type of white shoe law firm. Um, but now, frankly, I feel that I'm more of a writer who practices law. Uh, that I, I feel like that's more of my I- identity. But that said, I do. I have a facility with commercial contracts. Uh, I can, you know, essentially I, I work with in-house help, counsel, help them facilitate their commercial contracts, that sort of thing. That's the sort of work that I do as a lawyer. But I'm not exactly, you know, you're not going to find me in a courtroom arguing about anything. Uh, <laughs> so. oh, you're going to follow your passion. You've done it well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a big step in the right direction. So it, it was uh, destined to be this way, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, uh, going back to your book, The Insurrection, have you done any book signings? I know we discussed it briefly, but how are you doing that? Uh, so I've done, I actually just finished my last it's not really it wasn't a book signing per se it was all virtual so um the bookstores have been you know hosting these zoom based or you know whatever the technology they're using it's like these virtual events so people can log in and hear me read and i I have i've been having discussion partners so i've done four of these so far so um the first i tried to add some geographical diversity to these events, even though they're all over Zoom. <laughs> so um, 
One was through a bookstore in, based in D.C., another with a bookstore based in San Francisco, one with a bookstore based in New York, which is the Strand, which, you know, tri-state area people should know about, and then another with a bookstore based in Chicago. So, um, and I have one more uh, that is coming up in February, but I'm still finalizing the details. So that, you know, that's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed talking to the, you know, talking about the book with these discussion partners. I, uh, one was Shirali Munshi. She's a law professor at Georgetown. And then another one was with Patricia Williams. She's a now law professor at Northeastern. She was my former professor as well. And she is, you know, one of the, considered one of the, uh, I don't know if you could call it founders or uh, early proponents of what is really critical race theory. Not, I don't know what, I, I don't know why critical race theory is being used in this way now to describe whatever is going on. But classically, critical race theory was about looking at seemingly neutral laws and <clears throat> considering the disparate impact that they have on, you know, different uh, people of different races, right? That's, that was classical critical race theory. Um, and she also writes a lot in uh, uh, her, she writes about the law, you know, using autobiography as well. So okay. it was really, it was really nice to be, we didn't talk about that much in our, in our, in our discussion, but it was nice to be in conversation with her in particular, because even though we didn't really talk about it, number one, my book could very well be considered to be critical race theory, right? Number two, I'm employing personal narrative, and that's something that she also did. So that was, you know, it was very nice to be in discussion with her in particular for that reason. And then um, I had a talk with a poet, uh, Pamela Sneed, and another talk with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, who is a uh, history she, well, she's, she's a history professor. I believe she's emeritus now, but her historical work focuses mostly on uh, the history of indigenous peoples in the United States. I think she's best known for an indigenous people's history of the United States, which is a nice spin on uh, Howard Zinn's, you know, a people's history of the United States. Okay. So I really enjoyed talking with her um, yesterday. And it's just been, so it's been, very, very interesting. It's not, it's not an easy book to talk about because I think the, there's, you know, not only this legal history, but there's this personal narrative and sometimes it's hard to know what to focus on in the discussions. But it, I think my discussion partners have, they're, they're both, you know, if they're not, uh, even the lawyers themselves were also sort of literary. And then I was able to speak with a poet and I was able to speak with a historian. So I felt like it was a nice, cross-section of discussion partners who, who had a different appreciation for what's in the book. You know, looking at the current state of affairs, uh, you know, I'm talking about the alternate realities uh, between the conservatives and say the traditional liberals. What do you see going forward? I mean, is there a major threat from uh, looking through the lens of being a, an attorney and a historian? What do you see? Um, well, I think what I, what I see is, you know, nothing is new under the sun and that's not to diminish the, you know, 
the state of the current state of affairs or the particular threat it might pose or anything like that. It's more so, you know, after doing a lot of this research and writing this book, especially, um, and in the book, I do discuss that, you know, or I try to illustrate how, you know, there's certain themes and incidents from the past, you know, continue to recur. So it's, it's, it's a way in which we're not moving in a linear way through history, but we're sort of returning to scenes of various crimes in different guises. And it's like the cyclical, uh, you know, journey that we're on where the scenery looks different, but, <laughs> you know, the story is the same. Yeah, we're not um, really uh, learning from history. We're just basically repeating it. We're repeating it. It's exactly. Yeah. So, you know, this. so there's this whole, you know, the, the insurrection of January 6th. Um, I actually wrote an an op-ed essay about, you know, focusing on the fact that there has been this ongoing debate and contention since the, this uh, event happened last year over where to, whether to call it an insurrection. So, you know, you have this right-left um, debate where the left has said, of course it was an insurrection. This was a violent attempt to overthrow the government. And then you have the right who says, no, this is not an insurrection at all. Uh, at best, it was, you know, a rally uh, that got out of control. You know, maybe some would concede to call it a riot. But even that, you know, they, they seem to be very zeroed in on this, on this term insurrection. And what I, I basically chime in in that op-ed essay to say that what they're really arguing about is, you know, whether or not the crowd was violent. Because if an insurrection is technically a, a, a you know, um, an I don't know if the, I don't have the tech book, textbook definition on the top of my head, but either an attempt to violently overthrow the government or the violent overthrow of the government or violent uprising of the government yeah, yeah, with an attempt yeah, to yeah. overthrow. Yeah. So, you know, the of course, the people at the, the attendees of the Stop the Seal rally were engaged in some sort of uprising activity. You know, they stormed the Capitol, they're carousing through the halls. You know, they may, some may have had a specific intent to disrupt the certification of the election, right? You know, there was, a, you know, so that's not in dispute, but the dispute is whether they were quote unquote violent. So, you know, whereas the, the Democrats, the Democrats are hyping up uh, their violence or the threat of violence that they posed, the Republicans are downplaying it. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. But one is that obviously, once you call something an insurrection, that then invites a certain kind of legal or governmental response um, than if it were to be called something else, like say a rally or a protest or, um, you know, well, I don't know about coup. Coup seems to have fallen out of favor. No one talks about coups anymore. That that word was was thrown around at the beginning. But um, it seems as though Republicans are trying to resist whatever governmental action could potentially be warranted by the use of that word. And that gover governmental action would likely be directed at people that they, you know, some some of the people that they represent. Okay. That's number one. Number two is that what is interesting also about it is, you know, people have, have said repeatedly, what if they had been black? You know, there's yeah, no way. Yeah, we said that. Yes. Exactly. Like, they, you know, can you imagine black people 
just, you know, just walking through the halls, even if they were taking selfies and vandalizing things and looking goofy. They would have been, no, they would not have gotten that far. And they, and their mere presence would have been considered a threat. A threat. So, yeah. So, you know, we have that, um, I mean, this is all, this all goes back to this history because when at the, you know, at the, we call the dawn of slavery, I don't know, inception of slavery um, to, you know, when, when enslavement, it wasn't, it certainly was not a voluntary process. It was a violent, forceful process, right? And once that the system was in place, there was this architecture of surveillance and, you know, it was held together by the, the further threat of violence. Um, so there was a way in which just being black um, or Negro at the time, right, regardless of your technical status, whether you, you happen to be fortunate enough to be uh, a free, a free uh, black person, maybe there was a manumission or, or something, you were in a particular other kind of state, um, just your mere presence was considered a threat because there was a sense that, um, well, I'm not going to theorize here because I don't know what was going on in people's heads, but you know, there was certainly the threat of slave insurrection, right? Because to enslave someone is to then, you know, um, instill the desire for liberation. And that desire for liberation is not necessarily going to be achieved by peaceful means. So, there, you know, we're we're dealing with those old stigmas um, that were uh, imposed as part of that system to see black people inherently as inherently threatening, right? Like the 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 laws might have changed, but that stigma has not gone away. So, okay. yeah. All right, Michelle, are there any questions in the chat? No questions. All right, good. Okay. Just enjoying it just like I am. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jane, would you have anything for Ms. Allen? Any final, final words? No, I still got a couple more. Yeah. Yes, yeah, go ahead, Allen. Uh, I have one simple question. How do you feel about Black people receiving reparations in America? Yes. How do I feel about it? Well, I don't. I I feel like that should happen. I don't see any reason why that shouldn't happen. So it seems very straightforward to me. I I, I just what I what I am concerned about is making appeals to the government and waiting for those appeals to be fulfilled. It, it, it not that it not that it is something that is not worth time and energy, but. I would think it, it needs to be a part of a multi-pronged movement that, in, that involves various other tactics for, you know, basically justice, right? I, 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 guess, I guess in short, I, I, some, I'm sometimes a bit impatient about these appeals for justice from the state, like, and, because that's the very same state that caused largely the situation the problem, right? right. That, gave, that gave rise to the injustice. Um, it took, it takes, it, it, sometimes it takes centuries for heads of state to apologize for past atrocities, despite the fact that they themselves would not even be personally implicated. Um, so yes, I do. You know, of course, I believe that 
reparations are warranted. I believe there's obviously a case for reparations. I think it was Ta-Nehisi Coates that, you know, helped mainstream that case. And, it, you know, any reasonable person could, you know, see that this is, this would be obvious. You might want to parse and say, you know, who should be prioritized, you know, and I think, you know, there, there could be an argument, you know, what about black immigrants versus, you know, black people who've been here for generations? Like what, you know, there are all kinds of little quibblings that you can make. But the question is, you know, I guess I'm saying I wouldn't hold my breath. And I would also be thinking about other, um, you know, other other means of of sort of creating justice that are not dependent upon the state. Okay. And, and I, I actually personally, I would prioritize those because at least you know that you, you know, you have some control over whatever these means are. They might not be as grand as reparations, but they could be sort of uh, small uh, communal actions that build up over time and then create a sort of mutual interdependence, you know, where the state, you know, doesn't have to be uh, as involved in order to sort of restore, you know, justice, you know, to, for lack of a better word. Okay. So, so hold on, hold on, Walter, hold on. I'm not finished. So when you say small, so, so when you say small communal actions, what does that mean? Right. Well, I, it could be any, it could be numerous things. It could be anything from finding organizations to support and donate to. It could be uh, volunteering in certain uh, ways in order to, you know, maybe, you know, tutor or volunteer with after school programs or create an after school program. It could be, um, you know, f working with people who are growing food and depend and f forming these sort of food independence communities, or at the very least teaching people how to farm and how to tend to the land and how to be a little bit more self-sufficient. It could be, um, you know, um, thinking about ways in which people can learn certain trades and be independent in, in how they work so that they don't have to depend on employers for income. I mean, there, I, I'm, I'm just throwing a, a lot of things out there. It could be mutual, various mutual aid societies where people come together and they each have different skills and then they trade skills. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking mostly off the top of my head, but right. I, I'm just thinking about ways. It's like, do we always have to appeal to the state or can we start appealing to each other? Right, that's what I concluded. Uh, I, I concluded as much, brother. No, 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 no. My sister, this is no, this is no disrespect towards you. But the problem that Black people in America have is that whenever we speak of uh, reparations and what it looks like, we always have to present some type of scholarship, and I think that's nonsense. Give us the same thing they gave the indigenous people. We could start by making black people in America tax exempt, the same way they did the Cherokee Nation in the Midwest, okay? And then once they made them tax exempt, they gave them, that was under George W. Bush, he gave them $700 million, but the agreement was, you cannot have any black people part of the Cherokee Nation. So the Cherokee Nation held a, 
uh, surreptitious referendum and they voted out everybody that had black blood that were Cherokee Indians. They voted them out. George Bush cut them a check for 700 millions. And guess what happened in Oklahoma City? Casino high rise hotels went up. So, so that's the problem I have with the scholarship that black people always have to come up with when we talk about reparations. Because let me tell you, let me tell you this, sis. If I was behind in child support and I moved from New York City to to uh, Minnesota, as soon as I got a job and my social security number popped in the system, guess what's going to be in the mail? A letter saying that I'm in arrears and my license is going to be suspended and I could get arrested and I have to appear in court on this day and this month and this year. They know how to find you when they looking for you when you owe. So how come it's so hard to find us when you owe government? And with that, well, I'll digress. Well, no, I, 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 I appreciate, I know it's understand why you're angry. I think you have every right to be angry. I think, well, first of all, I don't know specifically about that case. I'm going to look into it because I'd be interested to know what uh, leverage the Cherokee Nation had in order to come to that deal. Um, I was just doing some reading. It's actually the book by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. And she was talking about there being legal precedent um, in the in the United States, uh, you know, uh, court systems for uh, indigenous people to uh, either have uh, be entitled to land reclamation or to some sort of financial payout. And I, it, this has to do with the fact that, the, you know, they, they were there and and you can't dispute the fact that they they do have a claim to the to the land in terms of uh, you know temp, like they were they were there first right I, I I'm I'm speaking a little bit vaguely because I just read this yesterday I wasn't really focused on it but it's hard for me to believe that is it I guess it was George W Bush would do something like this unless there was some kind of legal necessity there it's hard I this is certainly I can't believe it would be out of the goodness of his heart and I'm not talking about the merits of entitlement. I'm talking about the the reality of really expecting it. Like I don't really expect much from my government. Some people might and some people can you know push for it. I'm not saying that I'm right on this. I'm just sharing what my personal take is on it. Like I I'm not I don't feel that I am in a position to want to fight with the government for entitlements from them. Like, I just, you know, uh, I'm not saying that's not a worthwhile fight. I'm not saying that someone else shouldn't do it. I'm saying I'm definitely not going to do that. And I, I would rather put my energy and time into things that can have an, more of an immediate tangible benefit. Um, maybe I'm more jaded than you are. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Okay, so I want to ask you uh, this question before we close it off. It's getting late. Is there another book coming? Are you? you I think you indicated that you are an author, for, a writer first, and then a lawyer. Yes. Well, I, yes. I think we can expect something. Well, I, that would be ideal. That would definitely be ideal. I don't have anything in particular that is concrete enough to 
announce. But my plan is to definitely keep writing. And I like to write like it, the book format. I feel like it gives you a lot of space and a lot of autonomy to put in, you know, um, content that I th that you wouldn't necessarily be able to 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 um, release in the, like the essay format, which is usually what I'm writing, like essays or you know, much shorter um, you know pieces. So as as much as I procrastinated on finally writing this book, in the end, I can see that I really enjoyed it and I would like to do it again. You got to give me some tips on that. I started a book three years ago. And I still have the outline, and mm -hmm. it's always on my to-do list. I, you know, I haven't taken it off, so it's rolling. I just, I don't know how, I mean, you know, you know, but so it's difficult. Like, so I guess really the first tip I would say, and this is more technical, if you get Scrivener, I don't know if you know Scrivener. This no, I've never heard of it. It's a, it's not, it's, it's sort of like a word processing, processing program, similar to Microsoft Word is another program, but it's, it's geared more towards putting together book length projects and it allows you to organize all your material and like move, you can move chapters around, you can, you know, add all your notes, uh, you know, in the same program, you have multiple panels open. Um, I found I found it very helpful because it kind of it kind of because when you're just facing that blank Microsoft Word page, it, it's too much, yeah. it's too daunting. But if you feel like you can fill in yeah. little pieces and see it all in you know in one place, then you feel like you're you have something going. I mean that would that's my that would be my first very technical tip. Okay, okay. I don't work. I don't. I don't get any kickbacks from Scrivener, so that there's no conflicts of interest. <laughs> I don't <laughs> have to. Yeah, no, no problem. No problem. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Michelle. Any other questions? No more questions. All right, all right. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, uh, Miss Allen. Yes. You are the first guest in our millennial series. Okay, so this is the inauguration. All right, so I want to thank you. We appreciate your participation and hope that uh, you could re recommend other folks uh, for the show that meet the criteria of being one of the millennials. And millennials, let me just define that real quick, is a person that fits into that birth, that generation that we call the millennials, a person that has fought through and becomes become successful or they have achieved a major goal that uh, something similar, it could be, you know, across the spectrum. Doesn't necessarily have to be a writer, but you are also a poet and uh, and you and you represent, you know, you represent as well. So I want you, whatever person you think of or recommend to us to come on to the show, we would appreciate it because I know you would do some heavy screening as an attorney. <laughs> Okay, okay, perfect. Yeah. All right. Definitely. I'm going to turn it over to Michelle. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, Ms. Allen, for joining our show. Thank you to our live audience and panel member, Gene Edwards. And please make sure you join us as we start Black History Month next Friday. We thank you all. Please join us on our Friday Night Lives at 6 p.m. You can follow us at www.thewaltweekly.com, IG and Facebook, The Walt Weekly, Twitter, Walt Weekly, Podbeam, The Walt Weekly. We are on all major streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify Radio, and iHeartRadio. Uh, 
With this broadcast will be rebroadcast this Sunday at 3 p.m. on all streaming platforms. Have a great weekend, everyone. And thank you, Ms. Allen, once again. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for joining. Have a great weekend. Be careful. Good night. All right. Good night. Good night.